What, what is the mark of the saint? I mean, in our tradition, in, in the Protestant tradition, we believe that all those who are choosing to follow Jesus are the saints. We don't, we don't differentiate positions on the pathway to heaven as if some were closer to Christ than others. Everyone who's on that journey, after all, only has Jesus to thank for the fact that they managed to get on the road at all. It was by his grace, it was by his mercy that we even found the road. And so there's no pride of position for those who might, by virtue of time in the kingdom or experience advanced and are more mature in Christ. There's no pride of position in that because we recognize we didn't earn our spot. In fact, one of the marks of Christian maturity and Christian character is humility. So you would never find a mature Christian self-promoting or calling attention to themselves or to their holiness. Mature Christians are all about the job of reflecting God's glory by deflecting personal glory. You know, glory and fame are very interesting things in our society. We, we are a culture that promotes celebrity. We're enamored of our celebrities. People become celebrities by either entertaining us well or through, through the arts or through athletics or by making a great deal of money or by ascending the ladders of power. We want to be close to these people. We want to know about their lives. In fact, we want to follow them, at least on social media. And I wonder why. Do we want to be like them? Do we think fame might rub off on us if we are in close proximity to them? We're tempted to overlook the faults of our celebrities um, and we rarely consider the outcome of their lives. You probably know that fame and glory can be a withering, a withering spotlight that shrivels life and destroys family and relationships. But so many seem to want to pursue it. It's interesting to me that we even have Christian celebrities these days, which at some level is an oxymoron. I mean, I don't know how those two things can conceivably go together. Some of these celebrities are former athletic stars who have a testimony of what Christ has done in their life. Some of them are musicians who by exercise of their craft and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit have written music that touch our hearts or transport us into God's, president, into God's presence. Some of these celebrities are preachers or apologists who are able to teach the word with authority and success. We give thanks for every Christian testimony that exists and we're grateful for the God, for the, God, for the way God uses his people. But we should never get confused about the meaning of success in the kingdom of God. Nothing that anyone ever does on the athletic field adds anything to their Christian testimony. Nothing I write or perform makes me a better Christian or one worthy of following. Nothing I do in the exercise of organized religion makes me a person to be sought after. 
In fact, natural ability might just get in the way of true spiritual growth in that it can keep me from relying on and trusting in God and make me more likely to just rely on my own gifts and abilities. Mark 9 and 2, Mark chapter 9 and verse 2 and following, mentions some heroes, but they are not heroes in the classic sense. They are heroes more for what they sacrificed and what God did through them than they are for their own accomplishments. The first guy to show up in the passage we're eventually going to read today is Moses. Moses, if we're candid, was a flunky who didn't manage to figure out what God wanted from him until he was 80 years old. And when God finally told him what to do, he still didn't want to do it and he made tons of mistakes. But in the process of finally beginning to obey, God used Moses to liberate his people. He is the father of the Exodus, bringing the people out of Egypt. He goes to the mountaintop where he experiences God in a profound way. In fact, his interactions with God are so profound, he has to cover up his face when he speaks to Israel afterward because the brilliance of the reflected glory of God is too much for the people to look at. I wonder what that was like. I wonder what it was like not to be able to look at your leader's face. I tried to figure out how I could present that to you this morning. The only thing I could think of was if I lined up spotlights here and shined them all in your faces and put a mask over mine. You know what the sum effect of that would be? Is you couldn't look forward because that the light coming at you is so blinding, you have to close your eyes and look away. And it's sort of disconcerting I mean, what would you think if you couldn't look at your leader? That would be an odd thing, wouldn't it? And it makes you wonder what Israel felt. I mean, they knew why it was happening. They knew where Moses had been, and yet it was so bright, they couldn't look at it. Elijah is also going to show up in this passage. Elijah was the man who rescued Israel from Jezebel and Ahab. When Baal was about to become the national god, Elijah is God's chosen instrument to deliver them. God answers Elijah with fire on one mountain and speaks to him in a still, small voice on the top of another. And the prophet Malachi links them both together forever in Malachi 4.4. This is what Malachi says prophetically. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinance that I have commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Moses and Elijah are prophets of rescue. They are the two who hear from God on the mountaintop. They signal the coming of the Lord's salvation. Some people, especially Jewish folks, believe that Moses and Elijah are the two humans that were taken directly into heaven. 
Elijah, we're told, leaves the earth in a chariot of fire. Moses' body is never found in the mountains, leading some of the rabbis to teach that perhaps Moses was assumed into heaven as well. But here in this passage, they're both back talking with Jesus. Jesus is on the mountaintop and something is about to happen. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Mark 9, beginning in verse two, and I would invite you to stand for the reading. Mark 9, two. Six days later, and when you hear six days later, you should think just after Peter's confession and Jesus' teaching that he will have to suffer and die. Six days after that, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here they are on the mountaintop at the place Jesus has taken them, and while they are watching, the glory of God is revealed. Jesus is revealed for who he is. Remember that passage back in Exodus? Where, where Moses is permitted just to see the trailing edge of God's glory, this is more of the same. The glory of God that has been hidden is revealed. The corner of the curtain is lifted just a bit, just enough to give these three disciples a sneak preview of who Jesus really is. The passage tells us these disciples have no idea what to say. They're terrified. It may be that they suggest the building of three booths as an echo of the Exodus. Hey, Moses was there back then. The celebration of the festival of booths that the Jewish folks observed was all about remembering the wilderness wandering of the Jews. And so every year at the annual festival of the booths, folks moved out of their house into little booths and stayed there to remember what they endured in the wilderness. Maybe that's what was on the disciples' mind. Maybe they thought the kingdom of God was going to break in immediately, and since it was coming, they should 
be out in the wilderness remembering what God has done and, and, and staying there with Moses and Elijah and Jesus until the full kingdom of God is restored. We can't really say what was going through their minds. But one thing is really clear. This story is closely linked to what has just gone before. It says after six days. It, it, this, this story happens just a few days later than what we talked about last Sunday. Remember, the disciples had a concept of the coming Messiah as a conquering hero, one that would not die ever. And Jesus has just revealed to them that he is going to die. That created a great dissonance for them. Those two things couldn't both be true. Either Jesus was the Messiah and he was gonna usher in the kingdom of God and live forever, or he, that meant he couldn't die. But if Jesus is going to die, can he be the Messiah? I mean, how do you put their, their concept of who Jesus would be together with the fact that he told them he was going to die? And so this, this emergence of the glory of God helps the disciples understand who Jesus really is so that they can listen to him. They don't know the ways of God. They cannot imagine what is going to happen. On the mountaintop, they receive a vision an important communication about those ways. You remember back to what happened at Jesus' baptism. John stalls for time saying, you know, I don't think I should do this. Jesus affirms saying, let all righteousness be fulfilled. And then as it happens, God confirms for Jesus and John and all who might hear, you are my son, the beloved with you I am well pleased. You have the confirming voice of the Father on the ministry of Jesus. What is the Father doing now? We're on the mountaintop, the glory of God is being revealed through Jesus and the voice comes back again to confirm, this is my son, my beloved. And if there's any doubt in the disciples' mind about their concept of Messiah running into Jesus' words that he's gonna die, the Father adds some very specific instructions. I think if you're gonna get a tattoo, these are the words that get tattooed maybe on your big toe. Listen to him, right? This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him on the top of the mountain while the glory of God is being expressed. I can understand the trouble that these disciples have, having lived their whole life with categories of understanding who the Messiah is going to become. I mean, we get these entrenched ideas that we build our lives upon, and when they get shaken, when they get rattled, we're very, very uncomfortable, and these disciples are in that place. Their foundations are being shaken when Jesus says, I am going to die. They don't understand greatness and glory in those terms at all. And so they need this kind of very pointed instruction from the Father. They need someone to shout, listen to him. Otherwise, they're never going to give up the foundations they've built their lives upon. But we sang it already this morning. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. There is only one foundation. And if we've built ourselves on our lives on any other thing, those things deserve to crumble. 
those things deserve to be shaken away. We need to be shaken until those foundations are gone and we are resting on the only stable foundation that there is, Jesus Christ, the one to whom we must listen. I think the real problem for the disciples is this. They don't know how far Jesus has already humbled himself. They can't conceive the fact that he was in heaven and he left there. And he's about to humble himself even further. He has already humbled himself by leaving heaven. He has already humbled himself by taking on human form. He has already humbled himself by being born as a baby and trusting himself into the hands of a human mother, a not very experienced human mother at that. Do you remember when in your family the first child is born and how everyone's saying, where's the owner's manual that comes with this baby? I mean, do first-time mothers, especially first-time fathers, inspire a great deal of confidence? He trusted himself into a teenage mother. He's already humbled himself by by being born into poverty. And now he will humble himself even further and allow humans to torture him and to crucify him. And he's even going to taste death. He's going to humble himself to the point of ultimate loss all for us. This is humility beyond our understanding. This is self-denial beyond anything we can conceive. So when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, he knows what he's talking about. He isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. And he isn't asking any of us to go as far as he has gone to do as much as he did. It's sort of sobering, isn't it, to consider the level of his self-denial for us. But this is not a sermon about self-denial. This is a sermon about glory. Greatness in the kingdom of God is tied to humility, to quiet service, to humble submission to the will of God. We all talk about how much we want to see the spirit of God move in our services. We pray for the day that the kingdom of God will break in, will sweep through and and break down the walls of addiction and prejudice and injustice and sin. We want to see the grand manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We want to see an exciting revival, or a revival of repentance and transparency and salvation. We want to see the glory of God manifest right before our eyes. And it's possible to know and to experience the manifest presence of God, the glory of God. But you say, how does it happen? The pathway to glory is the way of the cross. It's the humility of Christ that brings glory. It is by his humility, not by any other of the accomplishments of Christ, that Jesus is exalted by the Father. It is by humility, not by our human accomplishments, that the glory of God will be seen in us. It is by selfless service that God is glorified and through which God's glory can be seen. We know The sacrifices of God are a humble heart, a contrite 
spirit. And this is the pathway to glory. Mark connects for us in this passage, once and for all, the suffering of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. It is his condescension that brings his glory. You want to see the glory of God? You want to see him at work in the lives of people around us? You want to know the power of the Holy Spirit? Then pray for his glory to be revealed in us and prepare to pay the cost in humility to open the door to it. So the disciples have this grand experience on the mountaintop. Then they head back down the mountain and on the way they're talking with Jesus and asking Jesus some questions. What did Jesus say about Elijah when his disciples asked about Elijah? Isn't, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Jesus says, Elijah has come, if you're willing to accept that. And what does he mean? He means John the Baptist was Elijah. And John came with a very specific message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. Make straight pathways for his feet. Get everything out of the way of the coming of the Messiah to you. Clean out all the obstacles to his coming. Make straight paths. If there are low places in the road, fill them in. If there are high places, obstacles, sweep them away. Make sure the way between you and the Messiah is completely clear so that he can come to you. Prepare the way of the Lord. And I guess what I'm curious about today is, do you do the work of preparing the way for him to come? Do the work to make yourself ready for his coming. He wants to be glorified in your life. If the work of your life is to amass or fame or power or resources for yourself, that's the opposite of preparing for the coming of the Messiah. That's like building mountains in the way to keep him from coming. That's like setting up your own obstacle course for the Messiah so he can't get to your heart. Because if you're quiet long enough, you might hear what he has to say, and if you hear what he has to say, he might convict you of not necessarily doing things the right way, and some of your foundations may begin to crumble, and all the extra props you have built to support your house will start to shake, and you might get stuck losing some of those supports. And some of those false foundations will crumble away until all you're left with is the one true foundation, Jesus the Christ. And you will have to humbly admit that he is the only foundation that's worth our while. When I was a teenager, all these many decades ago, we used to sing this little simple chorus. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Higher and higher and he will lift you up. That's sort of a simple little tune. 
But we would just rather ignore that, wouldn't we? This whole bit about humbling myself, this whole bit about self-denial, that is not palatable at all. And we'd rather just avoid that peace. Sure, we want the manifest presence of the glory of God. Sure, we want places where the Spirit of God comes and moves and has his sway and and frees us from addictions and frees us from our sin and, and gives us new life in Christ. We just don't want it enough to humble ourselves. And friends, you can't have that without this. They're linked together. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And six days later, he reveals his glory to them. It's a preview of the glory he will have when he actually does die and the Father raises him. If you read in Philippians 2 about the condescension of Jesus, after all the ways he's humiliated himself, when you finally get past the place where he's dead, Paul keeps writing. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glorification follows the humiliation. The manifest presence of the glory of God among us is contingent on the self-denial And if we won't embrace this, we will never see that. And I gotta tell you, I wanna see this. I wanna see God move among us. I wanna see God use us. I wanna believe that scripture is true that says if Jesus be lifted up, he he will draw all humanity to himself. But we can't lift ourselves and Jesus at the same time. It's gonna be one or the other. And if we're all just caught up in lifting ourselves up, I don't know what Jesus is gonna do to draw humanity to himself. I think that's the crisis in the Christian church today. We're not willing to humble ourselves so that Jesus can be lifted up. And as long as we don't humble ourselves, how's Jesus ever gonna have a chance to transform our society and our children and our families and our homes and our churches? We're called to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Not in order to be lifted up, but in order that God will receive the glory from our lives. That's what it means to live among the saints. The saints are the folks who understand that we live to bring glory to God. We sing I want to be in that number. Do we mean it? Or we just like the tune and so we sing along? It, It may be that while I was speaking this morning, the Holy Spirit spoke to your heart and said, it's time for you to get back on track. If that's true of you, while I sing a little chorus we all know, I want to give you this opportunity to come and pray and to make that commitment. Um, He 
gives us course adjustments all the time. And it's always wise when the Spirit is prompting us to a course adjustment to pause for a moment and pay attention. So I would like to give you that opportunity if you'd like to have a quiet time of prayer at the altar there in the pew while we sing this course, you're welcome to do that. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, for fresh Lord Jesus, we pray for your help today. We pray that you would teach us to humble ourselves in your sight, to deny ourselves and to pick up our crosses and follow you. And we don't do this, Lord, as a strategy to gain glory. We do this in response to the way you've humbled yourself for us. And we want to be like you. Would you help us to that end? We ask this humbly in your name, Lord Christ. And now may the glory of God be reflected in your faces because you have been with him, because of your proximity to him for the sake of his kingdom. Amen.